everyone. Welcome to episode 139 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are glad to be together today. We have so much to talk about. Absolutely. And it's the first day of fall. Yes. Autumn, whatever Mm. your preferred (laughs) word for that is. But we love this season so much. I mean, I'm going to go so far as to say it is my favorite season. Yeah. I like all of them, but I really love fall. Totally. So here we are. We have a big thank you. We have a new Patreon sponsor, Rose. Thank you so much, Rose. It's so exciting to to get the email that you became a member of our Patreon community. We're really grateful, and um, we hope others will consider doing the same thing. It really does help us cover the costs of, well, editing and, and other incidentals that we have for keeping the podcast going. We really appreciate it. And we are going to be making a big announcement in December. Yes. And we don't really like the idea of othering people at all, but we have decided we are going to let our Patreons in on the secret early. Yeah. Should we call it a secret? That might be a little bit. An announcement change. Yeah. Just an update. An update in celebration of our fifth year. So I know. That was a little teaser. (laughs) But if you want to hear early, join the Patreon team, but everybody will hear eventually. So don't feel like you won't if you don't. We know. It's not for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And we don't want anybody to ever feel totally excluded. Right. Never. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a lot of thoughts about that because some Patreon accounts, they have special episodes, Patreon only episodes and things like that. We don't want to do that. Yeah. But we do appreciate if you want to join. Absolutely. We love all of our listeners, no matter how you listen or consume us. Exactly. Ooh, consuming us. (laughs) We also want to make a special shout out to an author in a book. The book community is kind of trying to get behind author Kai Emmons, who has a book out called Sinking Islands. And this is the second book. I'm not going to say it's a series, but with a character, Bronwyn Arter. The first book was called Weather Woman, and it was a big hit. The protagonist, she's a scientist that has the ability to influence weather and natural forces which would be pretty cool. But Kai just released her book on Tuesday. The pub date was September 21st. And sadly, she's suffering from ALS. And so she's having a really hard time promoting the book because she is losing her voice or has lost her voice, I think, completely. Yeah. And and right now, as everyone knows, being online, doing videos, social media, streaming, events, that's how people are getting the word out about their books. And since she can't do that right now, we really want to help promote the book for her. Yeah. On the day before her pub day, she said on Twitter, life has never seemed stranger. Your book comes out on one day, the next day you're in a doctor's office discussing feeding tubes. So we're thinking about you, Kai, and really hope that people consider picking up a copy of this book. It's called Sinking Islands by Kai Emmons, and it's out from Red Hen Press. All right, Emily. So what are you currently reading? I am digging into a chunkster. It's Ruth Ozeki's new book called The Book of Form and Emptiness. This is a novel. It just came out on September 21st. It is really unusual. It is narrated by a book. So it's quite meta. (laughs) I can't say I've ever read anything quite like it. Ruth Ozeki, she's written several books, but the only one I've read is called My Year of Meats. She just writes very unusual styled books. She keeps you on your toes. And this is a story about a mother and a son, and the father sadly dies at the very beginning of the book. And the young boy now has the ability to hear things like objects speak to him, which is making him feel slightly crazy and making people around him think he's crazy. There are alternating chapters where he pipes in here and there and kind of talks to the book like, oh, I can't believe you told them that. And then most of the story is told from the perspective of the book. (laughs) So it's like the book is telling his story. It's very unusual. <laughs> do you do you kind of get lost in who's saying what or no? No, because it's made very clear. And what she does that's kind of funny is Benny is the little boy and he'll pipe in and he'll talk to the book about responding to what the book just told us, essentially. 
And then at the start of the chapters that say the book, so the chapter literally says the book, it will respond to what just happened at the beginning. And then there'll be kind of a chapter number underneath that where you jump back into the story. Okay. So it's actually not confusing at all. It's just funny. And then there's a little nod to Marie Kondo. You know, the people now say they've condoed their house, you know, like she's the one that's all about tidying your house and whether objects bring you joy. And so there's a little book that the mother who is a hoarder in the story finds a little book about cleaning up your house and cleaning up your life and your mind and all that. So it's like books inside of books. I'm enjoying it. It's very long. And I feel like sometimes that's the only thing that's frustrating me. And as big readers, we've talked about this. It's not because I'm not necessarily enjoying the book. It's just like, ah, books are coming out as I'm reading this book. And that's my own internal battle to fight. So (laughs) again, it's called The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. I see a lot of dog-eared pages. Yes, I'm embarrassed to say that I just bought new post-it tabs, but I didn't have them next to me as I was reading, so I've been dog-earing. It happens. I'm not opposed, but I know some people are. Yeah, I think it's fun to pick up a book that's like well-loved and read and like aggressively read in that way, (laughs) you know, as long as it's not a library book. Right. People who do that to library books should be punished. Yes, I agree. But do you write in your books? Yes, I do. I've never done that. I have a hard time with that. I mean, I've underlined school books, but writing in a book seems Mm. like a faux pas to me. That's why I have a book journal. Yeah, I do that. I I do take notes. And then I have this flag things. I have been known to fold pages. Um, But usually if it's a book that I'm engaged with enough that I'm writing in it, I know that if I want to give it to someone else, I'll just buy a new copy to give to them. Right. Because quite often when I'm reading a book, my plan is always to give it away. Yeah. And I'd rather not give away a book that has all my scribblings in it. Right. Your secret comments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been in one of those phases again where I'm picking up a lot of books and putting them down and nothing is really sticking. Uh, But one that is sticking is another graphic novel. I've been reading some graphic novels of late. And this one is called Shadow Life. It's by... Marami Gato and Anne Shiu. The subtitle is When Death Comes Too Soon, Fight Dirty. And it's about an old lady who has been put into an assisted living facility home by her daughters, who mean well, but she does not like living there at all. Kumiko is her name. She takes off. That's the preface you could almost say is her leaving. It's done in black and white imagery. I'm showing it to Emily a little bit. The initial drawings were kind of chunky, like snippets of scenes and just chunky, for lack of a better word. So not a lot of detail in some of them. And then even throughout, there's not a ton of text throughout. Some pages have more text and some don't. At first, I thought I was having a hard time getting into it. But then I realized what a relief it was for my eyes when I'm reading it, because it is just black and white and very calm to look at, although it's dealing with some, you know, intense stuff. She's trying to live her life on her terms, and she's trying to get her daughters to see, I let you live your life on your terms. You need to return the favor. So we'll Mm -hmm. see where it goes. I'm almost to the halfway point, and she's reconnected with an old friend, I think her name was Alice. So they're in Canada, apparently, and they're of Japanese descent. During World War II, Canadians, the Canadian government also interred Japanese citizens. And these two friends had a falling out at that time because one of them joins the military. They were lovers, actually. They weren't just friends. They were lovers. And one of them joins the military. They don't talk for 50 years. But now that she needs some assistance, that's who she calls and their friendship is starting to be renewed. There's also a young woman of Indian descent. She owns her own vacuum repair and sale shop who becomes a bit involved. So far, so good. I'm really enjoying it. I look forward to picking it up every evening when I have time to read. So again, that Shadow Life, When Death Comes Too Soon, Fight Dirty by Hiromi Gato and Anna Shiyu. Sounds really good. 
I'm working through a poetry collection called Water I Won't Touch by Caleb Ray Kindrelly. This was sent to me by our friend Jana. She participates in the Elliott Bay Book Company's subtext poetry subscription service, which is every other month. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Look at this card, Chris, that they put inside of it. Oh, wow. It has this intensely beautiful writing. And they inserted in the book and it said, this month, National Poetry Month, we are so glad to be sending you water I won't touch. It's published by Copper Canyon Press, our neighbors in Port Townsend, and it is incredibly tender and true. Enjoy the Elliott Bay Book Company. Nice. So so Jana subscribes to this and she read through the collection and asked if I wanted to see it after she was done with it. And of course I said, yes. <laughs> what the author is doing in this book is they're working through survival of childhood and a rough parental situation and then falling in love and having a partner and then dealing with their own alcoholism. And I thought maybe what I would do is read the title poem, if that's okay. So this poem is called Water I Won't Touch. It's hard to explain my persistent sadness when I keep so many blueberries frozen in the freezer. Nirvana in the past was plenty of fruit and all the moments spent outside of myself. But currently, I am trying to pull the planets from retrograde and remember all the ways my drinking can kill me. I still want a lake-sized sip. This is such a citrus habit of mine, such acid rusting away my tooth enamel. I never learned to drive because I knew one day I would learn to drink. I have always been almost selfless like this. Sure, there are some things I regret. I once left my mother's Minolta on the hood of a car and I regret each memory lost in turn. Because I am an alcoholic, my memories are seven amens and a few holy spirits from Hogtide. I name all my favorite bars after churches. Pigeons are swans if you squint. You know, the cherry blossoms bloomed again this year despite all the damage to my liver. And autumn is coming, even though I've said things I do not mean. Mm. Yeah, it's... It's a collection that I understood all the poems. I didn't necessarily like every poem. And we've talked about that with poetry collections. Usually to me, there's a couple of really standout poems. The other thing I should mention is that Caleb Ray Kendrilly is also coming to terms with being a trans person in the world and how you have to face your family around that. And I really appreciated that part. I thought it was really brave. Again, the collection's called Water I Won't Touch by Caleb Ray Candrilli. I like the cover. Yeah, it's got a very cool cover. I like anything that has to do with water. Yeah, so it looks like a square pool. It, is that lockers or buildings on top? I can't see from here. I think it's buildings and diving boards. Oh, diving boards. Which represents, I think, diving into yourself and into the world. It'd be interesting, actually, to talk to the person who designed the cover. Yeah. And then Copper Canyon Press is a nice press out of Port Townsend in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you for sharing that, sure. for reading the poem. Yeah. Well, the other book I'm reading, I'm one chapter in. It's Like Other Girls by Britta London. And this is a YA novel about a girl who's on the basketball team, and she's planning to go to college on a basketball scholarship. And she has a temper. So in this first chapter, she just has such attitude and she's angry and something happens and she decks somebody and she gets kicked off the team. Eventually, she gets on the football team. This is the point of the story. I believe she's queer. I don't know more than that. I seriously read chapter one and then chapter two I just started, but then I had to put it down and go somewhere. So I'm looking forward to getting back into this. More next time, probably. Yeah, football seems to be a good place to place your aggressions. So right. We'll see how that yeah. goes for her. <laughs> so that's like other girls, <laughs> Britta London. And I've seen a lot of people reading it, putting on their good reads. Yeah, it's popular. And I think she's a very popular YA author as well. Yeah, I needed some teenage anger. Yeah. <laughs> Girl anger. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm also listening to an audiobook. It's a brand new book. It just came out from Norton. Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature by Farah Jasmine Griffin. 
and this is really, it's fascinating. She's a professor and a lifelong reader of African-American lit. Her dad passed away when she was only nine, but before that, he had really introduced her into the Black literary tradition and music as well. Jazz, he was really into, I think, Miles Davis. I'm maybe halfway through, and she does talk about some music. And she talks about culture. Everything is just kind of entwined in such a graceful way. I'm really enjoying listening to this. She reads it herself, which I think makes the book a little bit different because you know where the stresses are a little bit. Like you believe the stresses a little bit more because it's by the writer. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good way to say that. I think it's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And even just, I mean, on a sentence level, they probably enunciate certain things that are important to them in a different way than a narrator might. Yeah, a hired narrator, I should say. Right. Yeah. So I'm seriously enjoying it. Some of the things that are really different for me reading this is, again, it's a little bit of literary studies. So she looks at, for example, Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, and then Barack Obama as writers and as givers of speeches, then their lives as well, and what they have in common. You know, Obama didn't just come out of nowhere. He came from a literary tradition you know, the same with Malcolm X in terms of rhythms and subjects. But what was fascinating with those three gentlemen is that they each had to separate from their mentors for different reasons. That was just kind of a fascinating connection. And I appreciated someone talking about Obama as a writer and how he fits into the literary tradition because I do enjoy his writing. So I look forward to continue on with that. Again, that's Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom and Black Life of Literature by Farah Jasmine Griffin, who is a professor of literature. So, Emily, what have you just read? I finished Fault Lines by Emily Itami. This book is billed as a marriage of the author Sally Rooney and early Mirakami. I've only listened to one Mirakami book and I've never been able to get through a Sally Rooney. So I can't really speak to that, but I just thought I'd tell people that. It's a debut novel. It's about Mizuki, who is a Japanese housewife living in Tokyo, but she spent a year abroad in the United States in high school and really kind of got a little Americanized then and moved into a household where she went to the mall and she loved singing and she just kind of got a little bit of an American vibe going, moved back to Japan, lives in Tokyo, married, has two children. And her children are those ages where they're trying to roll their eyes and you're kind of lost yourself. Her husband is working all the time, doesn't seem to want to have anything to do with her. So she goes out on the town one night and meets a restaurateur named Kiyoshi and they strike up a little relationship. That's the gist of what it's about. I think that what I really appreciated about the book was watching her rediscover herself. You can lose yourself as a parent, but she's still like really in the depths of being a mother and having kids at home. There were things about it that it was tough because it seemed a little traditional but I also am not overly familiar with the Japanese culture. I enjoyed the culture part of it, the food, being in Tokyo, the experience of being a woman in Tokyo is much different than the experience of being a woman in the United States. I enjoyed it. I thought some of the traditional aspect of it was troublesome to me, but I also think that was kind of one of the points of the book. You know? Okay, yeah. Yeah. And she's a great writer. I'm excited to see what she'll do next. It was good spare writing, which I think might be part of what they're talking about with the Mirakami. As far as Sally Rooney, I think what she's known for is she writes about millennials and their relationships. And I would say that definitely is what this book is about, if that's the comparison. I think Sally Rooney is also known for writing about a lot of sex. And although there was sex in this book, there wasn't like explicit tons of sex scenes or anything like that. Okay. A little disappointed by that. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's called Fault Lines by Emily Atami. And then I also read a delightful little book by Maggie Smith called Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change. I know Maggie Smith more as a poet, but this book is a book that came out after she went through a divorce. And she had been with her husband for 
19 years. So it was pretty traumatic for her and her family. What she did, since she's a writer, is she just sat down every day and she asked herself, what now, when she sat down and was at her journal? And her answer was, keep moving. And that really struck a chord with me because I remember after I got divorced, I would lay in bed and just feel like I cannot get out of this bed. And then my kids would get up, my daughter especially, and she'd climb on top of me and say, waffles. (laughs) And it was like, okay, I guess I'm getting out of bed to make waffles this morning again. And so this notion of like, keep moving. Yeah, you have to just keep getting up and getting out of bed. And so she had like little essays in here, but then also little tiny affirmations. This would be an example. Prioritize your own happiness, security, and wellness. You cannot care for anyone else until and unless you care for yourself. Secure your own mask first. Keep moving. Amen. So she has an affirmation. And then at the end, it'll just say, keep moving. And I loved it so much. Here, let me read. Do not talk down to yourself for struggling. The struggle is part of the transformation. Trust that the version of yourself that emerges on the other side will be stronger for it. Keep moving. It's just lovely. Like I said, there's all these affirmations and then there's little tiny one-page essays in between the different sections of the book. There's three sections. The first is revision. The second is resilience. And the third is transformation. Our buddy, our mystery man, John Valeri, on the social medias, I can't remember, it must have been Twitter, I think, alerted me that on October 26th, the Keep Moving Journal is coming out. So she's created kind of a workbook that we can use to help ourselves. So I'm really looking forward to that. As John said, it's the gift that keeps on giving. That's great. Well, and you and Maggie had a nice little exchange on Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah. I would love to meet her. I have a lot of respect for people who take pain and turn it into art. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real talent. So again, it's called Keep Moving Notes on Loss, Creativity and Change by Maggie Smith. Nice. I'm definitely going to check that one out. All right. Now, Biblio Adventures. I had a super fun Biblio Adventure And it turns out Chris has had this Biblio adventure in the past, (laughs) like five years ago. So we just figured that out as I was talking about it. The gentleman caller and I headed up to Maine for a very quick overnight. We stopped in Ogunquit, which is one of my favorite little seaside towns. And of course, I had to find the local library. And the Ogunquit Memorial Library is this beautiful stone masterpiece. It was built in 1897. And out front, it has this most adorable little free library that's a replica of this stone library. And each of the stones that are on this painted little free library were hand-painted by this woman. The little free library was created, like built by Chris Woodbury and painted by Judith Woodbury. It turns out Chris went there in 2016, among other times, I think, but that's when you blogged about it. Yeah, we were there and uh, it was open and I was able to go inside. The first time I'd been to Algonquit was in 2001. It was the first vacation Laura and I took together was to Algonquit, Maine, because, you know, we love love Maine and the seaside and everything. And I just thought that was the most charming library. So beautiful. So we have pictures, it turns out, On Chris's blog, which I'll put a link in the show notes, there's a great picture of her in front of the library. I took a picture in front of the library, so she's going to do some picture magic. But then also we have pictures of us both, unbeknownst to us, standing in the exact same place with and without the Little Free Library. Yeah, we'll post those. That'll be fun. Yeah, Yeah. so Chris was there pre-Little Free Library. I was there post, so that's pretty cool. So anyway... That was my big adventure. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great adventure because that's one of those little libraries. It's a small library, but it's just so charming and has such character that you just can't help yourself. You have to just stop and look at it. Yeah, it's very sweet. And then there's a, a walk called the Marginal Way that takes off very nearby it, which is a beautiful cliff walk. Yeah. along the sea. So yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a yeah. delightful little day if you 
want to add that to a biblio adventure of your future, we highly recommend it. Yes. (laughs) Do you have any upcoming jaunts? You know, I do. It's a general jaunt. Um, I'm going to be going up to Boston next week on some school work, but I'm hoping to hit at least one bookstore while I'm up there. I don't know which one yet, but I've been making my lists and I'll be checking it twice to see which bookstore I get to. I'm going to hazard a guess that on episode 140, there's going to be more than one Boston bookstore visited (laughs) because there's a lot to choose from up there. That would be tough for me. I know. I just don't know how much time I'll have. We'll see. You know, maybe I'll blow off my work and just go to bookstores, but no, I won't do that. I'm too responsible. Just work from bookstore (laughs) to bookstore. (laughs) You can figure it out. Well, I'm going away. Also, I'm going to Martha's Vineyard. I'm going to go on the hunt, on the prowl, I should say, for some Sisters Blackwell archival information. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Headstones. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just curious now that I know about the Sisters Blackwell and know that they spent a lot of time on Martha's Vineyard. I'm really curious to see what I notice differently And then there's three bookstores that I'm hoping to get to. And I intend to get to all of them because I'm going to be there for a week. So there's Portobello Road, Bunch of Grapes Bookstore, and Edgartown Books. Mm. So I'm looking forward to visiting all three. Will they be new visits for you? Have you been to them? I've never been to Portobello Road. I just discovered that. I guess it's a store that has books, etc. I don't know that it bills itself just as a bookstore. And then the other two I have been to, and they're both really nice. And Edgartown Books happens to have, in my personal opinion, the best coffee on the island. Nice. I'm looking forward to that as well. (laughs) Uh, What about upcoming reads? I am really excited to be reading a book for my book club called Mrs. March by Virginia Fado. And this is a debut novel that is getting a lot of buzz it has the coolest cover it's got like i can't tell i honestly can't tell if it's a man or a woman right yeah it looks more womanish to me but who knows that could just be my assumption yeah with a coat and these green gloves that they're pulling on it's supposed to be patricia highsmith-esque i've never read patricia highsmith so yeah i don't know but um i'm reading it for my book club They say it's an explosive debut novel that flips the New York literary scene on its pretentious head. Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm also really hoping on my vacation to get to Richard Power's new book, Bewilderment. Nice. Yeah. Well, one that is on my list to check out very soon is Lauren Groff's new one, Matrix. I haven't read anything by her yet. This is about a nun in the 12th century, I think it is. And it's supposed to be very atmospheric and women empowering. And I generally like a good nun book. I'm a bit fascinated with nuns and monks and things like that. So I look forward to picking that up this fall. Yeah, it's getting a lot of good press. I mean, she's a great writer. I think I've only read some of her short stories, so I'll be curious to see what you think of that one. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. That's the book that's on my list when I go up to Boston to get up there. So Right on. Yeah. Well, coming up next, we have our interview with Janice Nomura, author of The Doctor's Blackwell, which was our current read-along title. We had our Zoom discussion with readers last weekend, and then we talked with Janice a couple days later. So we were able to ask her a couple of the questions that came up. We hope you enjoy this conversation with her. And then we'll be back after the conversation to talk about our feelings about the Doctors Blackwell. We're so excited to have with us today Janice P. Namura, author of our current read-along pick, The Doctors Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine. Janice received a coveted Public Scholar Award from the National Endowment for the Humanities to support her work on this joint biography. Janice's previous book was another joint biography, Daughters of the Samurai, A Journey from East to West and Back. Some of the publications in which her essays and book reviews have appeared include the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Smithsonian, The Rumpus, and Lit Hub. Oddly enough, back in 1988, 
Janice told her college guidance counselor that the one thing she knew she'd never be is a historian. Sometime since then, she fell in love with archival treasure hunting. And we hope to hear more about that during our conversation. Welcome, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. So the first thing we thought we would ask is, what drew you to the Blackwell sisters? Well, I learned with my first book, um, which was about 19th century Japan, that um, border crossing 19th century women were fabulous. And I wanted to spend more time with more of them in a different context. And the other thing I learned from my first book was that in order to do this kind of work, you have to be in love with your material. And for me, for the first book about Japan, um, my I am the, the American daughter-in-law of a Japanese family. I had lived in Tokyo for a few years. There was real resonance with the story I was telling in my own life. And I was also interested in that moment in history in an identifying way, not just a casual way. Uh, so when I finished that project, I really wanted to do another one. I sort of looked inside myself and said, okay, what else is in there that I can connect to in that deep identifying way. What else was in there turned out to be pre-med me from 1989. Um, I had, you know, hit college with the intention of, of being a doctor uh, and then got seduced by the humanities. <laughs> um, but that fascination with medicine and especially 19th century medicine, which is just so gothic and juicy and sticky and wonderful. terrifying. <laughs> um, <so> <laughs> um, on top of all that, I now had a daughter who was showing some interest in, in the field of medicine. And so it felt like the right direction to head in at the time. And it turned out to be so. They provided me with an excuse to go back and study medicine in a way that I had decided against years back. Yeah. yeah. I love how you take us back to the beginning, just when the American Medical Association is being established. They really looked at the body as a garden then. There's a whole paragraph you write about that. And then, you know, they started to realize, well, there's more mechanics to the body that we need to study. Can you talk a little bit about going back deeply to that time at the beginning of the American Medical Association? Yeah. And for that idea, I really owe a debt of gratitude to the author Victoria Sweet, who is another big name in narrative medicine. She's a physician in San Francisco who wrote a wonderful book called God's Hotel about the last great public hospital in San Francisco and about slow medicine. She is this amazing combination of physician and historian of medieval history of medicine. So she has a lot of information in that book that I really responded to about the metaphors of the body. So pre-industrially, when we were agriculture-based as various cultures, this metaphor of the body as garden prevailed. The idea that you had to nurture the body, help it heal like a plant. And then with the coming of the Industrial Revolution and this shift in metaphorical ideas toward mechanism, the body is a mechanism. And when it breaks, it needs to be fixed. That was a real shift that came with the shift in the culture in the 19th century. I found that a useful framework to lean on in thinking about these shifts that Elizabeth and Emily were navigating as new doctors, as new female doctors. There was so much in flux in the moment that they hit the scene. That's part of what makes the story interesting. It's true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thinking about the garden and bugs and medicine, particularly leeches that were used, <laughs> particularly in women's health, which were really surprising. You know, I'd, I'd heard about leeches being used for bleeding, but not particularly in the OBGYN world. Right. Is your listenership ready for this kind of detail? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, uh, leeches were used for bleeding. I mean, Lancets were used for bleeding. If you needed to be bled because of a regular inflammation, you might be bled in your arm or in the normal places where we still take blood today. But bloodletting also was site-specific. So if you had an inflammation in a certain place, that's often where the blood was taken from. And if you had a gynecological complaint, getting a knife in there can do some damage. Sometimes they sent a leech down there to, um, to do some of that work. And I believe they did it by connecting a piece of string to the tail of the leech and letting it get in there and then pulling it out when it was full. <laughs> I hope I haven't lost you some membership here. But um, yeah, it's that kind of detail that I love because how can you forget that? How can you not feel more 
uh, identification with a woman who is faced with the necessity of trying to do this for the first time while betraying no sense that she has no idea what she's doing. Right. Uh, that, that humanized Emily Blackwell studying medicine in Edinburgh instantly for me that I hope nobody is watching too closely because I'm not going to get this right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> How many did I send down there? Right. You know, like, oh, are they full? I don't know. How do you tell when a leech is full? Yeah. Oh, you can tell. <laughs> well, one of the things that I found so intriguing about Elizabeth is you're reading the book and you think, oh, finally, a woman is training to work on other women and this is going to go really well. And then it turns out, as our listener Kate said so well, I think in an email she sent to us, Elizabeth thought she had to become a doctor, but lacked the passion for the actual practice of medicine and the healing of patients. You really come to find that as you're reading. How did you feel when you discovered that? It's fascinating. I mean, when I originally came to this story, I was shocked because I had never heard of Elizabeth Blackwell, even though I had grown up in New York and wanted to study medicine and went to a feminist all-girls school. How had I never heard of her? And most of why I had never heard of her is that I wasn't all that interested in the children's biography shelf as a kid. The people who had heard of her had found her there. And on the children's biography shelf, all of the complicating things are kind of sanded away. And you get this inspirational tale of the girl who decided she wanted to be the first woman doctor. Hurrah. In fact, when you get down into Elizabeth Blackwell's own thoughts in her journals, not just in her memoir 50 years later, but in her journals and her letters of the moment, you find a woman who has a healthy ego who thinks of herself as someone who can really make a difference to humanity. And what you come to is that she chose medicine rather strategically. It was a very graphic way to make this point that women could do things that men didn't think women could do. If you went to medical school and you sat through all the lectures and you passed the examination and they handed you a diploma, who could argue that you weren't a doctor? So she wanted to do that to make this point. She wasn't all that interested in taking care of people, healing people, but she was very interested in sort of healing humanity. She was a fan of Margaret Fuller, who had written this book called Woman in the 19th Century, where she argued that women could be anything they wanted to be. And until they proved that, humanity was not going to rise to a new level of enlightenment. Elizabeth Blackwell really thought of herself as someone who could help that happen. Uh, You could probably call it grandiosity and not be wrong, but it was a kind of drive, a kind of big thinking that I think is required if you're going to make the kind of radical change that she ended up making. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense now, too, thinking about her and her focus on hygiene and sanitation. And, you know, those are really widespread philosophies or practices that could and would affect a lot of people at one time as opposed to taking patient by patient. So that makes sense. Yeah. Right. She came to see that the role of a woman doctor was not so much as practitioner, but as teacher armed with science, someone who is in a position to change the way people think about health. She really gravitated more toward public health than general practice. And part of that was, as you know, that early in her career as a doctor, she lost one eye. And that kind of closed the door on surgical practice for her and propelled her in a direction that she probably would have gone anyway. But it just underlined that tendency. What was her struggle like with that? Did you come across archival sources or, you know, you mentioned her journals. Did she really struggle with that? The resentment of being injured, treating a woman patient who was possibly a prostitute? Yeah, I don't think there was resentment. She lost her eye because she contracted gonorrheal conjunctivitis from an infant who had been born to a woman infected with gonorrhea. Baby passes through the birth canal. They can receive this infection. She was helping to clean its eye in a maternity hospital in Paris when some of the washing liquid splashed into her face and she contracted this infection, which pre-antibiotics was not easy to cure. And she almost lost her vision completely. She didn't feel resentment, but she did say things that are a little startling about how she identified her suffering almost with the suffering of Christ. This idea that her suffering was for the masses, was for humanity. She framed it that way. Again, a little startling, a little bit perhaps grandiose, 
but it kept her going. She never wasted a moment in self-pity. She just kept marching on. When she lost her eye and was fitted for a glass prosthetic, she basically never mentioned the disability again. And she didn't go home to convalesce. This happened to her in Paris. She went on to London and kept studying in another public hospital. That alone, again, these moments that crystallize your sense of what kind of person this was and whether you know anybody like this now. I don't know anybody who could have endured that kind of physical trauma and not missed a beat. Mm, Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's interesting because we had our Zoom discussion with some readers on Sunday night and some people really had an issue with Elizabeth's personality and it was so off-putting to them. And it just made them not really care for her as a person. I didn't have that feeling when I was reading it. I just felt it really made me question, how does a person get hardened when trying to forge a path that's never been forged? Or is it that now that you're talking about how she dealt with her own health situation, was it that she was just so focused on what she was trying to do that she kind of had blinders on to other things like people's feelings, maybe? Definitely. I also think she was the kind of person who struggled with human connection. Hmm. I've had readers suggesting to me that maybe she was on the spectrum. Maybe she had Asperger's. I don't know. That's unknowable. The, The terminology of the moment shifts over the decades and centuries. It is without a doubt certain, though, that she wasn't easy with people. You know, I grew up, as I said, at a proudly feminist all-girls school, and all of my teachers, or many of my teachers, were, I like to say, prickly but fabulous. So when I encountered Elizabeth, she resonated with my mentors. I recognized her as someone who wasn't going to give you a hug, but was going to teach you a great deal. And the world needs those women as much as the huggers. <laughs> and that leads me to what is one of the biggest points of this story, which is we need to get over this idea that our female heroes need to be likable and adorable. We need to get over that. Agreed. Because it got us in a lot of trouble quite recently. Yeah. <laughs> this idea that in order to get behind a female leader, you have to like her. We don't treat our male leaders that way all the time. I'm a great reader of mythology and fantasy and quest narratives. And I'm always annoyed when the princess hero consults the crone by the side of the road and then rides on. It's like, lady, the crone has all the wisdom. Stay with her or take her with you, but don't just leave her there. She's the one who knows what to do next. (laughs) I, I think we could do well to pay more attention to and follow our crones, our our wise women who aren't necessarily adorable. The best description I've ever heard of biography is that biography is a handshake across time. My mission for this was to reintroduce these two sisters to people now. In that very way, Elizabeth and Emily Blackwell meet the people, then see what happens. What, What happens after that handshake is not my business. How you respond to this person is between you and the historical figure. So my job is to make the introduction, create the context for you to explore each other a little bit, and then step away. And I love to hear how people respond and the whole range of responses, because history is just stories about people. Getting to know history through people is what I like to do. Yeah. Now, how did you make that transition from telling your guidance counselor that you would never be a historian to really getting turned on by archival research. The transition started to happen in college when somebody said, oh, you have to take this wonderful Chinese history course. And I said, why would I do that? I don't really have any pressing interest in China and I I don't really like history. Why would I take that course? And they said, just do it and thank me later. So I did. And it was a course taught by Jonathan Spence, who's a wonderful historian of China and a fantastic storyteller. And he would get up there twice a week for an hour and a half and tell stories. It was my first real understanding that history is just stories. If you can tell them right, it's time travel. It's a portal. And then later on, I moved to Japan. I moved back. I wanted to go to graduate school. I thought in writing, somebody gave me the good piece of advice that I should go to graduate school in what I wanted to write about rather than in writing itself. So I did a master's in East Asian studies and again, started to run across stories of the late 19th century moment in Japan that were just riveting stories and wanted to find out more. And that's when I first stepped into an archive and started turning over 19th century letters and deciphering 19th century handwriting. And I was completely hooked. That was another me to connect to, which was seven-year-old me who wanted to be an archaeologist. Mm. It was a great combination, that kind of treasure hunting. 
Um, and I was, I just, I was definitely hooked. Disclosure, I'm currently in library school with a focus on archival studies. So I'm a complete archive geek as well. And, and we had a listener right. who um, had a question or a statement that we'd like to discuss with you. Yeah, Susan emailed us and said, people writing history of our era will have no letters to chronicle history unless we start printing out our email. So much of what we know about the Blackwells comes from their letters. It's true. I think there will be a point where somebody doing my work 150 years from now will not be turning over folders of crumbling letters. They'll be finding it, though, another way. I'm convinced. I mean, how many of us have told our teenage children, don't post that. It's impossible to erase (laughs) it from the internet once it's there, right? It's going to persist, all of this. And in some ways, we're doing more writing to each other than ever, because we're all writing to each other all day long, whether we're letter writers or not. I don't know, maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist, but I have faith that archivists of the future and researchers of the future will find ways to access all of that stuff in the cloud that won't go away. And that is also revealing, maybe not in the same kind of long form polished, I'm now going to sit down and write six pages to my cousin in Boston. It'll be a different genre, a different medium, but I think it'll be no less human and no less revealing, I hope. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great optimism. Yeah. And I think it's true. I mean, I think it's just a way that Chris was telling me that there are things happening with digital archives already where authors are handing over their computers and things like that. So hopefully we'll have no problem, but it will look a lot different. People who study history and do the work that you do, there is something really exciting about unearthing mm. something that's never been seen before. Maybe that won't be as prevalent. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody can find a jump drive somewhere with <laughs> secret letters of, you know, Michelle. Obama or something. Who knows? Right. <laughs> True. I mean, how many people have a, a Word doc on their hard drive called journal? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or a top stuff secret. Out, you know? <laughs> Please burn. Right, right. Burn once you find me. <laughs> oh, I did want to ask just a question that did come up when we were talking with our group about the suffragette movement and how Elizabeth just was not in support of that at all. Do you think that was her need also to just focus on what she was focusing on? Or do you think it was deeper than that? I think it was a couple things. I think, first of all, yes, I think she was not interested in being part of a team. She was a soloist. Mm -hmm. And when they said, come join us, be part of our movement, that did not appeal to her. Um, The other part of it was a little bit more um, specific. And that is that the suffragists were very explicit that their first priority, that the women's movement's first priority was the vote. Elizabeth really didn't believe that that made sense. She wasn't against women having the vote. She was against the women's movement making the women's vote their top priority because she thought that if you give women the vote before you have helped them realize their own independence, all they'll do is vote the way their men tell them to. And that doesn't help anybody Mm -hmm. as far as transferring power. So I think she really believed that what she was doing, which was becoming a beacon to prove to women what they were capable of. Once there were more beacons like that, shining their light, giving the women the vote would make more sense because the women would be empowered to use it independently. I think that was also part of it. But also she just didn't want to be a team player. Right. (laughs) She didn't have a lot of faith in other women. And that's another piece of this story that's very, very modern, this female misogyny piece Unfortunately, another thing that I think it's important to look really squarely at that women who achieve aren't always eager to make space for women. I know, and it still happens today. Oh, yeah. I see it and it makes me crazy, but that's, you know. (laughs) Well, one of the things that came up in our conversation, um, on our Zoom conversation with listeners who read the book, is the issue of Kitty. So Elizabeth adopted this young, well, I guess she was an infant when she was adopted, or was she six? She was six or seven. Mm -hmm. Six or seven. So she adopted this Irish immigrant child who was orphaned, and we had the conversation that she seemed almost like an indentured servant to Elizabeth. Yeah, it was an interesting story. I mean, if, if I were a novelist, this would be the heart of the novel right here, this sort of gothic relationship. Elizabeth adopted Kitty Berry, who became Kitty Berry Blackwell, at a moment where she was alone in New York City, having completed her training. 
Her sister Emily was in the middle of her training, but not nearby. Elizabeth was struggling to find patients, really in doubt about this whole path that she had chosen and whether it was truly viable or whether she'd made a terrible mistake. And I, I think she was starting to feel a little bit of a slide into a dark place. And so she marched up to Randall's Island here in, in off, of, off of Manhattan, where the orphan asylum was. And she picked out Kitty, who was six or seven, as this weird combination of servant and daughter and acolyte and helper and fan. She really wanted a companion. She wanted someone who would always be with her to provide love in a way because she wasn't interested in having a partner and a family. Kitty fulfilled that role beautifully through her life. And interestingly, this woman who was making all of this effort to prove that women could have a career did not offer Kitty the opportunity to either marry or have a career of her own, although she did educate her. And Kitty remained by her side faithfully through her entire life. And when Kitty died in very old age, actually requested that her ashes be buried in Elizabeth's grave. So it's very complicated. I, I don't think Kitty was always happy, but I also think Kitty was always grateful to Dr. Elizabeth. She never called her mom. It was always Dr. Elizabeth. It's a complicated story. Elizabeth was a complicated Yeah, for sure. <laughs> One of the questions was, was this a common type of relationship in the 19th century that a woman who was single would adopt a child to be all of those things? I don't think this specific situation was common, although her sister Emily also adopted a daughter in a much more conventional way, adopted an infant who called her mama, who signed her letters with kisses, who went on to give her grandchildren a much more recognizably maternal familial kind of relationship. Certainly orphans were adopted to be helpers. There's that Christina Baker Klein novel, Orphan Train, that talks about orphans shipped on trains from Ellis Island to the Midwest to help on farms as servants. So I don't think it was uncommon. The Kitty Elizabeth relationship was unusual. It was unusual in positive ways too. I don't think those orphans were often offered a real education and Kitty received one. So it's an interesting part of the story. And I often wish that I were a novelist and not a nonfiction writer because I could run with some of this stuff that is really intriguing, but about which there's not a whole lot of explicit source material to go on. And I, I don't guess. If I were a novelist, I would, mm. I would have license to guess, but I don't. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so there's no temptation for you to, to head in that direction? There's no ability. <laughs> Are we allowed to ask you what you're working on now? We're allowed, but I don't have an answer. <laughs> I'm afraid. Okay, that's I fair. hope it will still have something to do with border crossing 19th century women. But the other thing that this project has delightfully allowed me to do is sort of slip in the back door of narrative medicine, where there are wonderful stories too. So that still attracts me. We'll see. Ooh, that's Great. exciting. Yeah. Hmm. Well, one of the things I thought about Elizabeth when I was reading the book is just, it was a reminder of two things, gratitude. I've had a lot of female doctors and I'm really happy that I can have female doctors. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is just recognizing the importance of work-life balance, which it seems like, you know, obviously that was not something that they talked about back then at all, but I really saw that in her, that just that single focus, you know, maybe that was part of what, although, you know, she was aiming towards something which had to feel really good in some ways, in other ways, I think that focus precluded her from having a fulfilled life in other ways. In other ways. I don't think there was anything balanced about Elizabeth Blackwell's life. And I think she wouldn't have had it any other way. Work-life balance is kind of a modern concept. Right. For all genders, that wasn't something. I mean, the, the roles were still so strictly defined in, in, in the 19th century that, of course, men worked all the time. And of course, women didn't. You know, <laughs> I love the part in the story where having achieved most of what they were going to achieve together, Elizabeth left Emily and Elizabeth left for, for, for England where she spent the last four decades of her life. And Emily remained in New York and ran the institutions they had founded together. And as soon as Elizabeth leaves, Emily kind of creates a new domestic life for herself. Very consciously, she adopts a baby. She finds a partner. She becomes the domestic partner of another female physician. And they have very happy decades together at the end of their lives. Um, that to me was a moving toward balance. If you define balance as personal contentment alongside professional contentment. So yeah, I think Emily is, an, is a, sort of an early model of, of, of that, of, 
of starting to have it all later in her career. Yeah, that's a great way of putting that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed that second part with Emily kind of stepping into her own. And really, um, some readers have said that they felt like the beginning part of the book leading up to Elizabeth getting that degree and, and starting her first practice was more exciting to them than the second half. And I think for me, that second half was almost more exciting in a lot of ways, because it is showing the struggle to establish a practice as a woman physician up against the prejudice of people going to a woman doctor and, you know, what they thought a woman doctor was mm. and just their struggle. I, I thought that was really compelling. Yeah. yeah, the very phrase female physician at the moment where they became female physicians was a loaded phrase. When Elizabeth reached New York after finishing her training, female physician meant abortionist. That was nothing but pejorative. So they had to reclaim the very words that defined them. Yeah. yeah. Wow, Janice, we could keep talking to you about this book. I'm really glad we chose it. I learned a lot. I think our readers learned a lot and certainly gave us a lot to talk about when we met with them. Thank you for your time and your research and bringing to light these women that are important in our history. Well, thank you for bringing the story to so many other women. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And we look forward to your next story. We'll be waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Emily... What did you think of the book overall? I was really surprised by it. I mean, I didn't go in with a lot of preconceived notions, but I really enjoyed it. I was intrigued by a lot of things. Mostly, it made me feel gratitude for the fact that I live in a time with modern medicine now. Mm -hmm. The main sister, Elizabeth, who was kind of the driving force behind getting into med school and wanting to become a doctor and was really driven around that lost one of her eyes to gonorrhea. And that was just shocking to me when that happened. Yeah, yeah. It was splashed into her eye, into both eyes, actually. She almost lost both eyes, but yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't have preconceived notions about it, but I was really impressed by Elizabeth's fortitude. Mm -hmm. As we talked about in our Zoom discussion, her personality was tricky. She's someone that, that's a term I use a lot. She was a tricky person. Yeah, but I have a lot of respect for what she accomplished. Yeah, because the question we asked at the beginning of our Zoom discussion was, which sister resonated with you more? Because Elizabeth's the older sister, very driven. Emily's the younger sister. You know, they had different worldviews. Elizabeth was about making this happen for herself and then eventually for the good of mankind. You know, as they say, and Emily was interested in medicine and became a really good practitioner. So she was more of the the practical hands-on doctor. Right. I mean, Elizabeth didn't even really like working on patients and touching patients. And really, Janice talks about this. Her goal was to kind of prove people wrong, that women were smart and women could be doctors. Her goal wasn't necessarily to be like the best doctor and having tons of patients, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, and the thing is, too, for those of you who haven't read it yet, at this time, it's the 1850s, and there are male medical schools, and that's it. Medical schools are for men. Her getting into medical school, it was almost done as kind of a joke that they let her in. And then within a couple decades, women are admitted into medical schools here and there. It's not like there's this huge surge of women And Elizabeth really felt that women should be educated by other women so that they get a thorough education. That was really important. So she and her sister started a medical college for women and a treatment center. It was, was it called a hospital? There was a different name for it. But they started this in the 1860s, I believe it was. And it was going until 1981 when it was incorporated into another medical institution, which is pretty tremendous. Yeah. And this was in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Really, the legacy of the two sisters is quite amazing. And that's the other thing I have to say is I just feel a lot of gratitude to them that they felt the desire to educate other women. I'm grateful for my female doctors. Right. Me too. (laughs) You know, the one thing I have to say, I I listened to the audio book and there were a couple times when I kind of gasped out loud. Mm -hmm. And one of those times was when Elizabeth met 
Abraham Lincoln. She's visiting the White House with a friend and who knows Abraham Lincoln and says, oh, the president's in. Would you like to meet him? So they go into Abraham Lincoln's office. And what Elizabeth has to say about it is he was uglier in person than in his photographs. And he pretty much kind of acted like a hick and sat at the edge of his desk to talk to me. And, you know, here she is trying to spearhead this movement for greater sanitation and, you know, hygiene initiatives. And she just kind of says hello, I guess, and walks away. One of the interesting things that Janice said was in the archival research, for a lot of the stories that happened to Elizabeth, she's able to corroborate what happened or compare notes with other people who witnessed it or who were there. But with this interaction with Abraham Lincoln, there's only that letter where Elizabeth mentions it. And, you know, she doesn't know why. Like, was she starstruck? Was she just exhausted? Did she not want to talk with him? Did, you know what I mean? Who knows what? But my initial thought was, holy crap, here she is with the president of the United States. What a missed opportunity because she's being so judgmental. Right, right. But that's, yeah. again, my modern take on things. Right. And just even modern interpretation of what a president does and, you know, what the conversations would be. And maybe the big accomplishment was that she was a woman that got to walk into the room and be with Lincoln and be maybe seen as a peer, who knows, but Mm -hmm. maybe then trying to have an agenda wasn't something that was allowed. But it could also be exactly what you're saying. Like she was just looking at him as a Unpleasant, not unpleasant, that's not the word she used, but like, you know, not a very refined person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I listened to a lot of the audio as well. And my hitting the brakes moment was when Elizabeth loses an eye to gonorrhea. And I just thought, oh, my gracious. And then she just carries on as if it's not a big deal. You know, she gets a glass eye. She gets on a ship to cross the sea, you know, and I just thought, wow. Yeah. What antibiotic does for us and other modern medicine is not to be discounted. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And during our conversation with listeners, a couple people recommended other books and we wanted to list some of those for you all here because we thought they were intriguing. Karen mentioned Leaving Coy's Hill by Catherine Sherbrooke, which I totally recommend too. That's a fictional account of Lucy Stone's life. She had married one of the Blackwell brothers. That's a nice connection there. Or as Chris calls it, a synchronicity. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So thanks to Karen for bringing that one up. Julie recommended The Agitators by Dorothy Wickenden. Emily mentioned Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine by Olivia Campbell. And I think the Blackwells are mentioned in that one. So it might be good to get another perspective on them. Uh, Katie, who's a pharmacist in in her day job, recommended In Falling Snow by Mary Rose McCall. She said, it was the first book that I read that made me realize I should read more about women in the medical field. It's historical fiction, and one timeline is at a hospital in World War II that is run and staffed entirely by women, suffragettes who switched focus during the war. So that sounds pretty good to me, too. Barb then recommended Testament of Youth by Vera Britton, which is a classic, highly respected memoir from World War I about her experience as a nurse and all the men she lost in her life. We had some people recommend books on Goodreads, and Sandy recommended Sunflower Sisters by Martha Hall Kelly. Debbie recommended Sarah Donati's books that are historical fiction, particularly The Gilded Hour, which is set in 1883. I think the characters are graduates of the school that Emily and Elizabeth Blackwell started, I think. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. 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 So that's a nice list, too, if you want to explore more related things. And then Colleen had mentioned a documentary called 13, which is currently on Netflix, related to the 13th Amendment and Imprisonment. Because one of the things we talked about was a woman named Kitty, who Elizabeth Blackwell adopted. Some of us thought she was kind of treated like an indentured servant almost. Yeah, she was an orphan. But um, Elizabeth brought Kitty in, and Kitty never even called her mom. So it was an interesting relationship. But she was very devoted to Elizabeth. Yeah. And don't panic about all those 
titles and everything Chris just prattled off, I will put them all in the show notes Yes, for episode 139. Yeah. <laughs> Emily does a great job with that. Every single book that's mentioned ends up in the show notes with a link to our bookshop.org page. If you would like to purchase through us, we get a little kickback and then part of the proceeds also go to independent bookstores. Yes. We love bookshop.org. Yes. All right, Emily, is that it? Are we wrapping it up here? We're wrapping it up. And next episode, we will make an announcement about our next read-along, our final nonfiction read-along for 2021. Yes. Can't wait to to see what we pick. Yes, we're (laughs) tossing around a lot of titles. (laughs) All right, everybody. Happy Happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then... Come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, We do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.